there, everybody. Welcome back to the World War Now podcast. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin. This is the first week in November here, 2022. Dimitri, how are you? And we welcome you to the uh, second last month of the tumultuous 2022. And I'm doing great, Conrad, myself. Uh, we have a lot of things to speak about, especially the some of the religious aspects of the current geopolitical as well as metaphilosophical landscape. I think there's... Um, some great stuff we can touch upon on this episode and but i'm doing all right overall like uh, very hyped i'm good i'm good as well i'm a little tired but i think uh, this is gonna boost me some energy a little bit talking about some of this stuff and this is gonna be one of those episodes where there's there's not really gonna be any other content like this on the internet so you know strap in for that but before we started recording we were kind of talking about are people gonna start thinking that we just like talk about whatever's in the news and not just you know about our more niche thing of geopolitics but in many ways the arc of history is kind of bending towards us, and whether it's even something like Kanye West or, you know, what's going on in England or what's going on even in random parts of South America, like, it, you, you only have to read one or two articles before you hear something that me and Dimitri have been talking about for a long time at this point. So I think, not to just say we're vindicated all day, every day, but in many ways, uh, the world is becoming more metapolitical, more metaphysical in this, in this way, so uh, it, all, it all seems relevant at times. Yeah, I think I think today mainly we'll be we'll begin this podcast by just speaking about some of the I guess the religious background to what the future may hold, and I guess what we're what we're going to mention primarily is an article by F Father Joseph where, where he speaks about the prophecies relating to Russia and the I guess the future affairs of the world, and the prophecies by prophecies we mean literally predictions by Christian saints, uh, you know, in particular of course Orthodox Christian saints, which speak about the the future of not not just world affairs but geopolitics russia about how things will eventually i guess according to god's will play out you know if if of course the state of the world you know remains in the certain uh disbalance which it is right now um and i guess these prophecies will see how they relate to reality and of course some of these great events that are occurring at the moment especially when it comes to um the war in ukraine and other things around the world so yeah, no, we have, you know, midterms coming up in America, which I think a lot of us hope could be the beginning of an off-ramp to the U.S., you know, adventure in funding the Ukrainian project. But we'll get to that in a little bit. And yeah, with, uh, you know, we've talked about prophecies of St. Lawrence before, of Chernigov, who's a great Ukrainian-Russian saint. Uh, we've talked about the words of Metropolitan Neophytos, a living saint of this day, the words of his spiritual fathers, perhaps St. Paisios and some others. But this this piece by Father Joseph really really brings out some of the some of the most relevant and and as well as you should read the whole article. We'll of course link it in the show notes on YouTube and Substack. But it also provides a lot of good context from him and uh, just it, about the understanding of orthodoxy of Antichrist of uh, of nation and these kinds of things. So it's 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 a great resource. I recommend anyone who is even curious about you know Christianity and geopolitics and just Christian history to read it. But uh, with all that being said, is there uh, is there anyone in particular you want to start off start us off with first, Dimitri? We want to uh, hear the words directly. We don't need paraphrases from us jokers. Yeah, I guess I guess we'll begin in the particular Substack. Father Joseph begins with the prophecy of um, a an Orthodox monk named Elder Porphyrius of Glinsk. Now, Elder Porphyrius passed away in 1868, so this is close to you know over 150 years ago, and this is essentially will be. Uh, just reading uh, Elder Perfurius's words, and he writes, In due course, faith will collapse in Russia. The brilliance of earthly glory will blind the mind. The word of truth will be defiled. But with regard to the faith, some from among the people, 
unknown to the world, will come forward and restore what was scorned. So that's the citation. Of course, as in all Orthodox tradition, even going back to the Old Testament, a lot of a lot of the um, written word was, of course, taken down from oral, from the verbal tradition passed on through generations. So, of course, Elder Porphyrios probably did not write this prophecy himself. It's most likely he passed it on to his uh, monastic monastic disciples and apprentices who wrote it down for him. It's similar in a, in a way to how St. John the Theologian, uh, the Apostle of Christ, wrote down the Apocalypse on the island of Patmos and his, uh, uh, you know, the saint sitting next to him, listening to his words, listening to the prophecy, wrote down the, you know, the, the book of Revelations, what we would call the the Apocalypse. Um, so Elder Porphyrius's prophecy, essentially, we can say it's just, you know, a couple of sentences, but it speaks about the fact that faithful collapse in Russia, and this is him writing in the 1800s, which Russia at the time, the Russian Empire was a very orthodox, a hugely successful orthodox imperial, like about imperial superpower, essentially. It wasn't as economically mighty or militarily mighty as the British Empire, but in terms of influence over the world, it was doing evangelical work. It had the faith of the orthodox people was spreading throughout the world. It was a huge um, source of missionary zeal. Uh, it was also, um, I guess, an economic superpower, which was growing to like exponentially throughout time. And it was the first time in a, in any country in human history that the Orthodox, the population, Orthodox people was that large in one particular place. So the fact that Elder Porphyrius in the, eight, in the 1800s would say something like, well, the faithful collapse in Russia, it is quite a dire prediction. And even Russian bishops and priests at the time would probably not listen to Elder Porphyrius. They would say, look, this man is crazy. Like, what is he? With all due respect, like, he is a monk, but he, what he's saying is absurd. How can faith collapse in the place where it's strongest at the moment? Look how powerful we are. Look how much gold our churches have. Look how Look how much, look how much like, laid here we have coming to church. But it, little did they know, in 50 years' time, the, you know, the devil will strike his mark. And, of course, the, uh, the Russian people did falter in the, in the time of tribulation during World War I. And, of course, the revolution and uh, things did collapse in Russia. But the second part of the prophecy, of course, speaks about the fact that, you know, the word of truth was defiled. So the Orthodox faith was um, attacked by, you know, firstly, the Bolsheviks, the communists. But again... Even these days, the Orthodox faith, not just in Russia, but abroad as well as being attacked by liberalism, this new scourge. And so the word the word of truth will be defiled, but according to the faith, from among the people, so essentially what you're saying is, from unknown places, these Orthodox people will rise up, these good Christians, and restore what was scorned. I mean, that's a... That's quite a decent prediction, wouldn't you say, Connor? The fact that there's this, uh, I guess, second part saying that by God's will, people will restore what was lost. I mean, that's sort of like a return, almost traditionalist, you know, kind of statement at the end there. Oh, yeah. And it fits into, in many ways, you know, they would have in, in no way the context to understand what we know now. And looking back, in many ways, we see while the Soviet yoke was brutal, especially at specific decades and periods of time, in many ways, it was able, to, because of the existence of the catacomb church, in many ways, it was able to protect the the, the soil, the, the the true essence of the Russian nation from from the modern spirit, from from liberalism, from what we see now, kind of the specter that's taken over, that's at least trying to take over the whole world. And that's not to say that communism wasn't something similar, but it ultimately p would pass on and was almost a, a like a literal, like an, a, a harsh, sharp, iron, painful curtain that still, perhaps in the grand scheme of things, was, you know, as, as they say, you know, persecution and martyrdom, you know, we should be grateful to those things for God, you know, in many ways that that uh, that idea was proven in 
perhaps the 20th century for Russia. And again, like you said, people would have thought Elder Porfirius was crazy. Like this is the time of, of Alexander III. You know, people have already lived through the reign of Paul I. Like these are these are people that the church is considering canonizing. Like these are these are just giants of of Christian government. Like these are these are rulers of the stature of, of of Byzantine emperors. And to say these kinds of things would be it would it would be shocking for sure. Yeah, I think especially when things are going really well, it's it's a little bit hard to kind of um to you know. And I guess in in the Old Testament we do see that we do see prophets attending you know the courts of uh, the kings of Judea and Israel and kind of describing you know this is what will happen in the you know I'm sure there's other parts not just to the prophecy but you know there's explanations as to why Elder Porphyrius said such I guess gave such powerful clairvoyant you know statements to his flock like there is a reason behind it Orthodox clairvoyance and prophecy notice that in the Orthodox faith. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but in the Orthodox tradition, we believe that Saint John the Baptist, Saint John the Forerunner, was the last prophet, and after him, of course, he baptized Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the pro the that Old Testament line of prophecy. We have these powerful prophets, these um, incredible saints. That kind of ends, of course. Saint John the Evangelist, Saint John, uh, Saint John the Apostle, was another sort of figure with a similar prophetic gift and the one who you know looked after was the caretaker of the Theotokos and wrote the book of revelations and you know the um his letters and the uh the fourth gospel which many people uh, you know venerate very greatly so the fourth gospel of john which begins with the words you know about the word of god and god jesus christ being the logos i mean it's these these are very foundational sort of things even in today's conservative thought you see jordan peterson bring up the fact you know he's speaking about the logos and it's all a reference to saint john's saint john's gospel now i think it's it's important just to understand that um things were things are going very well and in the orthodox tradition prophets there aren't any there's no more designated prophets in in the church or in that you know there aren't any saints which are given the title of prophet anymore but the gift of clairvoyance and prophecy is still is still around because that is one of the gifts of the holy spirit so the holy spirit being you know god being still active in the world gifts to his some of his people for for you know for it's essentially for the benefit of, I guess, the church overall, and not not just the church, but I guess everyone in, uh, around, and maybe even to bring people into the church, it gifts them uh, these gifts of clairvoyance, and at times they speak about things which may come or things which most likely will occur. By saying most likely is that, uh, you know, nothing in the future is set in stone because the Old Testament teaches us as well, as well as the New Testament and the lives of saints, they do teach us that the behavior of the people living in the future will, of course, sometimes sway the mercy of God. God will be merciful and maybe not exact certain judgments on his people in the earthly in the earthly realm. Wouldn't you say, Conrad, like this is, I mean, we see the same in, I guess, the modern world, which is why in at the Divine Liturgy in Orthodox churches, we pray, we ask, have mercy on us, O Lord. We, we actually actively ask for mercy so that certain events do not transpire which we most likely deserve you know but probably hope we're hoping that you know that god has mercy on us and gives us maybe uh, yeah. a soft test yeah no no exactly and in many ways i think I've, I've i've plugged this video before but everyone needs to watch metropolitan neofitos video on uncreated light press youtube channel about the power it's called the power to change prophecy 
And he speaks about, you know, because he's gotten criticism from the secular media in Cyprus, but like, who's this crazy bishop talking about war prophecies and World War III and the vaccines and all these kinds of things? But at the end, and, and people might think, like, this is just going to rile up people with fear. This is just going to scare people, make them think about this kind of thing. But no, when you understand that, in many ways, Metropolitan Neophytos is speaking to the people immediately in the room at times when he says things, as well as he admits through the technology of the world, people around the world. When prayerful people hear things like that, their response isn't fear and, and freaking out. Their response is prayer. And I struggle with that as much as the next person, but I know there are people out there that their response is prayer, and they're prayer, they are prayer warriors, and they are people who, when, when they fear for the possible health and, and well-being of their neighbor and, and their church and their community and people around the world, they will be praying day and night and prostrating and, and saying the Jesus prayer and asking for mercy. And that that this is this is how we engage in spiritual warfare. And so then a living saint, someone like Metropolitan Neophytos, who is given this gift of the Holy Spirit, because in many ways we're all prophets. After Pentecost, in many ways we're all prophets, because by revelation, we can all open the scriptures and, and see and know and proclaim that Jesus Christ will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And everyone has that ability. Everyone has the power to proclaim those words because it's the truth. But just in the same way that, you know, sin and, and participation in sin and turning away from God, you know, pro- give, give you hair, provide harrowing circumstances in your, in your day-to-day life. Those who do the opposite and are always imbibing in the Holy Spirit and are truly working out their salvation with fear and trembling and are co-workers with God are, they're, they're given the foretaste, you know, of things to come, which is these, these gifts of, of clairvoyance, which is just a glimpse of what time perhaps could be perceived as in the eschaton in us, in our, you know, in our, in our divinized bodies and these kinds of things. So, these, this is this, this is a very biblical and very uh, like th- we're see- we live in biblical times. You know, we could, I would go so far as to say that, and to keep going with some of these prophecies, though, so we don't uh, don't spend too much. We want to make sure that you hear the that in many ways this was something that the saintly, that the saints of of Russia were were really were really in, almost in unison about. And we have Archimandrite Jonah. You know, Archimandrite being a a priest monk. Uh, he says uh, in 1902. You will see what will happen in 50 years' time. Everyone will forsake the law of God and will fall away from the faith. But then they will again come to their senses and turn back and live in a Christian manner. And that's very similar to what Elder Porfirio said. Yeah, I think it's noteworthy. Notice it's we're reading out some of these titles. So Archimandro Jonah, very high-level title in, of course, the Russian church. But can you just imagine the privilege we have these days, not taking anything away from the uh, venerable Archimandrite Jonah, but we have the privilege of having a metropolitan such as Neophytus of Morphe. Metropolitan is a much higher rank, not just in the Greek church, but in the Russian. There are only, I believe, up to, I think, just just maybe over between 50 and 100 metropolitans in the entire world. This is, you know, 7 billion people almost, right? So a metropolitan is a very high title in the church, and we have a metropolitan openly almost clairvoyantly speaking to not just orthodox people but to the entire world warning them of the events to come and that they should turn to christ and here even like this is so god is sending us some of his highest most respected leaders to kind of proclaim his word and to give these warnings about what the future will hold and of course we're referencing metropolitan neophytus of morphus uh, clairvoyant statements at the beginning of COVID, the COVID pandemic in March, and I think it was April. No, it was even prior to that, right? It was January, February, twenty twenty. So oh, it was yeah. February twenty twenty, as well as his words in the past just five years about Ukraine and about war and and about you know with Russia. He's been he's spoken very openly about all of these things. Yeah. And again, he's the spiritual child of three saints of our time. Saint Paisios, probably the most well known for his prophetic clairvoyance, is very. 
very well known for that. And so it's like, yeah, like like Dimitri mm. said, having having bishops and it, it's truly the, the the wheat is being separated from the tares. And we talk about how uh, in many like Metropolitan Neophytos is it's very important that he is this has the saintly succession behind him and reading the prophecies of these pre-revolutionary Russian saints. It helps you understand how the saints and the martyrs were able to endure because they understood that they were coming from a, a lineage of, of, of other saints. And they knew that the cloud, that cloud of witnesses in heaven above them was, was praying them on and that those people had given them these words and these of comfort, you know, imagine having heard this, this is the kind of thing that gives someone the power to endure torturous, torturous martyrdom for Christ because the Holy Spirit gifted them with holy elders and holy words and, 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 and trust that like to strengthen their faith. That's what like people read like in, in, in accounts of martyrs and even the scriptures and God strengthened their faith. Like, sure. The specifics aren't mentioned because they perhaps might not be relevant to us now, but what we don't know exactly, like strengthening their faith in all sorts of supernatural ways, you know, and this is, this is one of those ways. Yeah, I think, and even even in a very worldly sense, just the fact that notice some of these prophecies, they're, they're like, they predict something dire to occur. In this case, both Archimandri Jonah and Elder Porphyrios, they both speak about an event that will come, which is the Russian Revolution. In our time, of course, the Russian Revolution was 100 years ago. We know the you know tragic outcomes of that and the Civil War and, of course, the other tragedies of the 20th century and so on and so forth. But for notice how these these elders of the church they also mention in the second half of their prophecies that look there will be a comeback there will be a return to people will live in a christian manner uh, just quoting archimandrite jonah and um the one thing i wanted to mention Conrad, was also the fact that i didn't mention in the first segment but metropolitan neophytos of morpha the fact that we live in such i guess almost like it is almost like a world war now state where the world is all not globalized, it's all very tense and hot, and a met an actual metropolitan, so a high a bishop of very high rank needs to come to us to tell us about these dire events, as opposed to just a simple humble elder from a monastery. And it's almost as if things are escalating to the point where we know at the end of the world, and I'm not saying we're there yet, but in the end times, of course, according to Orthodox Christian tradition, when the Antichrist from the tribe of Dan will rule rule in Israel. Okay, so the Antichrist will rule in Israel. God will send down, of course, his his two witnesses to come proclaim the word of God to the various pagan or uh, Orthodox Jewish tribes. For example, the prophet Elijah will return, and the um the forefather Enoch as well will be a prophet who will return to mm -hmm. teach the pagan peoples. Notice, so right before the world ends, God sends his literal like the trump cards like the biggest the biggest people from world history will emerge and even they in 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 some way will fail to i guess not fail but i guess people will not take their word just like they didn't listen to saint john the baptist in his time just greatest of prophets saint john the baptist so even so god sends us higher ranking not everyone officials. even listened to mm -hmm. god himself well, not absolutely. everyone even listened to christ himself so, so it's, in a way it's a little bit scary because that's right. You have metropolitan, a literal metropolitan of the Greek Church is telling you things, and people are still doubting him, sticking to the liberal presupposition, saying, "Well, he must be senile, or maybe you know, maybe he's in prelist, or maybe he's." You know, people are saying really absurd things about a high-ranking bishop. It's not like back in the Russian days where you had like, you know, you'd go to a monastery and, and you know, a venerable, humble monk will maybe give you a clairvoyant statement about the future. No, we have literal bishops with a microphone telling us directly what the future will hold, and people are still doubting it. So, I mean, I'm not surprised that God, in the end, will send a, a, the prophet Elijah himself to us, and Enoch. Um, yeah. 
I mean, the spirit of this world is so strong that people would like, like people are so afraid of looking, looking silly or looking like, or like looking like they go looking like they're unwise to the world as people would say, but we're supposed to be unwise. Like we're supposed to look foolish to this world in many ways. And it like, again, many people even thought at the time that St. Paisios was Elijah and he explicitly denounced this obviously. But, you know, I think, I think just, I think it's safe to say that we're perhaps seeing seeing that mode enter into our church life and perhaps preparing us, those at least who perhaps have ears to hear, to eventually then hear those words. And I have no idea how long that will be. But I mean, just think about it. I mean, Metropolitan Neophytos himself, he is a, he is a metropolitan on in the Archdiocese of Morfu, Metropolia of Morfu, rather, on Cyprus. Half of that is occupied by the Ottoman Empire, you know, Turkey. Half of it is still, you know, occupied by an occupying Muslim force. His name is Neophytos which means the new, you know, I mean, there's all, like, these are all sorts of interesting things to think about. And uh, the, like, you know, a neophyte is, you know, someone new to, new towards something. And, and Cyprus is the, is the island of the Apostle Barnabas. I mean, it's one of the oldest apostolic seas, actually, after, you know, the apostolic seas themselves of, you know, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Cyprus was founded by the Apostle Barnabas himself. And like, this is, to, to not be paying attention to, I guess, what the Christian leaders there are saying would be, I think would be foolish for anybody. But do you want to perhaps uh, hit us with some of these next ones, Dimitri? Yeah, I think maybe, maybe say something about that, but then we'll move on. No, I, yeah, I think it's really it's really I think important to pay attention to the words of our bishops, especially those who have uh, proven time and time again to be uh, you know proper leaders of the faith and who have an active active role in I suppose um, defending the Orthodox faith. Not, Metropolitan Neophytos is not just someone who comes out every now and then and gives a statement. No, he actually not only leads his people in his local diocese, but he also defends the faith in uh, apologetic terms against against Catholics, against certain um, zealous Muslims, etc., etc. So he is, he's actually, his work, it goes beyond just making viral statements which go which become popular online. So don't be mistaken here. He's, in terms of, if anyone listens and says, well, this must be someone who's just doing things, doing things for clout, maybe like an Andrew Tate, like making, oh, making very, making statements which will go viral. No, no, no. These, these, Orthodox clairvoyant statements. This is of a different level, of course. Um, and the next, of course, the next saint, speaking about clout and fame, uh, Saint John of Kronstadt, uh, and his prophecy, I'm just going to read it out. I foresee the restoration of a powerful Russia, still stronger and mightier than before. On the bones of these martyrs, remember, as on the strong foundation, will the new Russia be built, according to the old model, strong in her faith in Christ God and in the Holy Trinity. And there will be in accordance with the covenant of the Holy... Prince Vladimir, a single church. Russian people have ceased to understand what Rus is. It is the footstool of the Lord's throne. The Russian person must understand this and thank God that he is Russian. Oh, I mean, okay, that's the that's the prophecy. I mean, what jumps out at you, Corinne, at a first glance here? Because I'll, I'll, I mean, I could probably speak about this for about half an hour, but um, there's a lot to discuss, definitely. I mean, besides the stuff that, you know, has indisputably already happened, of course, you know, the bones of the martyrs, and the, we, we've discussed this extensively on the show, I think the most obvious interesting one is, and there will be in accordance with the covenant of the Holy Prince Vladimir, a single church, which says to me nothing more than the U Ukrainian schism will end in our lifetime. Yeah. That's what I think, at least. Absolutely. Notice how during St. John's time, there was no schism in the Russian church. It's, it's very interesting that the Russian church essentially was united. Of course, the... The Russian Church, people need to understand, it's called the Church of Russia. This is what we're speaking about, the local Orthodox jurisdiction of, I mean, called the Church of Moscow, the Russian Church. Now, that church is not just for Russians. It's actually very multicultural. It has a, a, 
it has Japanese people, it has Mongolians, Chinese, Uzbekistani, Kazakhstani people, all the various tribesmen of Russia, Siberia, Alaska. I mean, even, even Americans at one point before the American church gained its independence was also under the, I guess, under the, um, you know, I'm a four of the Russian church. And so the Russian church- you know, I'm in the Antiochian yeah. church with St. Raphael of Brooklyn is like kind of considered our main guy. He was under the patronage of Tsar Nicholas II, and he was an Arab speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have even Middle Easterners and members of the, the Russian church is, is simply an administrative jurisdiction. But yes, it does cater primarily to the, the, tri, the tripartite Russian-speaking peoples, which is why the language which they use is Church Slavonic at the Divine Liturgy. And what are these tripartite? What is this like triune um, conglomeration here? Well, we're speaking about the Russians, or what they call the ethnic group is the Great Russians, which live on the main Russian mainland, I suppose, surrounding Moscow, St. Petersburg, Novgorod, and those areas. And then you have, of course, the Belarusians, which, uh, which live close to the Baltic in the West, and the Malorussians, and of course, I'd add, there's probably a lot more variants there, but the Malorussian people as, or today, what they're called, you know, Ukrainians especially. So we have these triune peoples all united under one church. And more than that, we have, you know, people from China, also members of the Russian church, etc., etc. So notice St. John, he mentions the church will be one single whole. The schisms will finish. They will end at least, of course, for a time, hopefully. But at the moment, we don't really see that, do we? But so it's probably a prophecy and not even about the Soviet times when the church was repressed to the point of, you know, um, you know, the Orthodox Church was in survival mode, essentially, especially in the Russian mainland and the Soviet Union. Now we're going to see an unlocking, I guess, um, kind of we're looking forward towards what he's speaking about. Saint, he mentions Holy Prince Vladimir which is, of course, the baptizer of Rus, the great prince who was living in Kiev, who, I guess, uh, baptized all of Russia, you know, took on the faith from the Orthodox Greeks. Like, these are all, this imagery is being brought up in geopolitics in the Russian-Ukrainian war right now. Ukrainians are claiming that St. Vladimir is some sort of Ukrainian forefather, but St. Vladimir, first and foremost, was a great Orthodox saint, firstly. And, of course, he was also from a an ancient Russian dynasty, and Russian back then, it meant not just specifically great Russian, but Ukrainians and Russians were one people. We had, we have one ancestry. Uh, we weren't divided, even not even culturally back then. It was one entire sort of uh, ethnic unity. Yes, diverse in certain areas, but again, united by by these great saints and leaders. Oh, exactly. And there's, and even even in the in the Russian Church, there are even places for you know Anglo Germans like me. I mean, Zarina Alexandra. She was a an English aficionado of German heritage, and she's today a great uh, empress, confessor, martyr of our church. And uh, I was going to read the next one from Elder Aristocles of Moscow from 1918, which this one gets, you know, this one gets a little esoteric. He says, an evil will shortly take Russia, and wherever this evil goes, rivers of blood will flow. It is not the Russian soul, but an imposition on the Russian soul. It is not an ideology nor a philosophy, but a spirit from hell. In the last days, Germany will be divided. France will be just nothing. Italy will be judged by natural disasters. Britain will lose her empire and all her colonies and will come to almost total ruin, but will be saved by praying enthroned women. America will feed the world, but will finally collapse. So uh, I want to hear your thoughts on some of that, Dimitri. There's a lot there. Yeah, I mean, and a lot, of course, a lot is kind of shrouded from our eyes. I mean, for example, um, when he mentions praying enthroned women, like uh, who exactly is he speaking about here? Like is... 
is he speaking about you know Queen Elizabeth II, or is there somebody else who you know isn't yet revealed to us, or what exactly is happening? Um, not too not too sure. But Elder Aristocles of Moscow, notice he does mention, of course, again he's prophesizing about the fall of Russia and the evil that took over Russia, the Bolsheviks, the communists. Yes, that is confirmed. That has already occurred, and him him essentially clairvoyantly telling us that that will happen is, of course, a great. Um, you know, a great sort of evidence, I guess, of the action of the actions of the Holy Spirit of God in the world, at least back then and today as well. Now, notice now he mentions the fact that this ideology, a spirit from hell, will also take over Russia. I feel like today a certain other spirit is has taken over the world. Now, this spirit is um, definitely different to that of the communists, and even though you know modern libs they do call themselves marxists and followers of marx but their ideology is very different from the leninist trotskyist uh, ideals that were pushed back in the early 1920s this is what we see today is definitely an ideology from hell there's even like memes going around that look uh, you know we're descending into a certain like uh, hell world in terms of you know people um abusing children etc spreading degenerate ideologies um you know even even the money even money is completely not worth anything. Even the you know, notice Christ's words, give unto Caesar what of Caesar's. But Caesar is Caesar's like like even the the term, like even talents and denarii don't even apply anymore because we have fiat currency and essentially everything's a shitcoin. Um, forgive my French, but you know, everything essentially is equivalent to a cryptocurrency. Money has no gold backing it. So even these biblical ideas of gold and money being equivalent, that doesn't apply anymore. We're working in an artificial like mark of mark of the beast type almost mark of the beast type system it's really really unhinged right and notice how he mentions of course france italy britain all these countries germany today are essentially colonies of the united states elder aristocles does not mention america does not mention and of course i don't mean america as a sort of collective of people but america as the global american empire the gay so the gae running running these affairs in europe all of these countries you know men, Affa mentioned here are all members of nato they're all enslaved by this i guess ideology and you know they're willing participants then it's not just that they're enslaved you know uh from the outside no they're, they're actually willingly participating in this european union nato s globalist uh, agenda and uh yeah here we are we're kind of eating the fruits of that and of course we're noticing in in the ukraine ukraine kind of wants to join into that theater of um whatever degenerate circuses happening at the moment so oh and you, you talk about uh america it's i mean some of this i think you argue is happening right now i mean he says america will feed the world but will finally collapse like what's happening right now if it wasn't for american you know propping up of the current western european countries they would have already come to the negotiating table with russia like they're and and, and we know that it's eventually going to get to the point where it's going to be out of necessity not out of just desire to keep those countries in line and this is complete speculation, so uh, no one no one quote me on this on anything serious, but when it comes to, you know, what the praying enthroned women could mean, I mean, I was just mentioning, you know, Empress Alexandra, uh, Grand Duchess Elizabeth, you know, the royal martyrs, the Grand Duchesses are Nicholas and, Al and Empress Alexandra's children, I mean, those could be the enthroned women praying for England, I mean, they're daughters of, they're daughters of England in some sense, I mean, they were close there and they at this time they were still alive when elder aristocles said this and it wouldn't be until you know uh 2000 that they would be 
you know, glorified by the church. So that 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 could very well be what yeah. they were talking about. And like the Russian imperial, the Russian Empire was very close to the British Empire in terms of not just familiar relations, but the British high British imperial culture was very much appreciated in Russia, even amongst Orthodox folks. Like for example, Saint Nicholas II, he last emperor of Russia. After dinner, um, him and his children, he would read to his kids in the in the lounge room. He'd read them Sherlock Holmes, written written by Arthur Conan Doyle. So. The last Russian emperor, an Orthodox Christian, right, the Catacon, would read Sherlock Holmes to his kids, right? This is like a, you know, it's one of the greatest, I guess, modern pieces of literature, like a detective book written in English. And of course, his children understood the English language. So the English language is is a global language for a reason. And even the last Russian emperor spoke it fluently. And of course, his wife did too. And his wife was the, I think, the grand or the great granddaughter of Queen Victoria. So exactly, as you said, Conrad, this reference to the enthroned women could have, could of course mention the russian nobility which was very closely related to the british royal house exactly and i just want to say this is a bit of a backtrack but i just want to mention you talked about metropolitan the Ophithos, and how he's not just you know making videos for clout and talking about these kinds of things much like these elders that wouldn't even be a thought because they were telling this to you know one monk probably in a cell but when it comes to that kind of thing i mean saint porfirios in his the metropolitan Ophithos says this in his interview with father peter hears St. Porfirios told Metropolitan Iofitos that technology of the times that you don't even understand yet will be how your words are heard in Australia, in America, in Europe, in all, all around the world. And that's happening. I mean, Metropolitan Iofitos has, for better, he's, he's been on the radio, he's been on, he, he's been on YouTube, and, you know, he's, a, he's an old Greek, not super old, but he's an old Greek bishop. You know, I don't think he's super technologically versed, but, you know, his, his monks help him and they, he's able to be obedient to his elder saint porfirios and have those have those words you know broadcast around the world much like the roman road system which no one would say the roman empire is in itself virtuous at the time but its road system allowed the gospel to be spread and like Dimitri just said the english language i would say in many ways it's a tragedy that the english language has become what it is because as an english speaker my I, I almost don't even have to learn foreign languages but the english language as lingua franca i could see that easily having uh uh, implications that could help spread the gospel and having you know everyone be able to understand this language that for better or for worse there are more orthodox words in english than you know perhaps in Khmer or uh swahili and some of these other languages so having that again perhaps a, a, a thing that it isn't of itself is not good is then used for something beautiful yeah i think it's important just to understand that n never to at least always approach things with discernment and don't it's it's important for like not not just the listener but um, try not to make very strong judgmental stances over things which may be neutral in the world, because of course humans are all fallible and humans always make mistakes. And you know, just because the the British Empire did participate in a lot of you know evil, and by evil I don't mean essentially the colonialism and the imperialism, which is definitely a factor. But I'm speaking more about the cultural impacts which it may have had. Like it does not mean that it did not have positive effects on the world. And somehow did not play into god's plan for what the future will hold of course for you know for the positive side and for the in serving the church of course and i guess we remember great english um clergymen such as uh, uh metropolitan callistos Ware, who passed away this year uh so these people like even though some of their books are criticized but some of these books for example like the orthodox way was quite um, especially some of my friends who came to the faith, they really appreciated these works of, I guess, an introductory uh, book about Orthodox Christianity, which brought a lot of clarity to the to the English-speaking people who've read it. Um, and now just moving on, this next prophecy, we've actually spoken about St. Seraphim of Veritz a couple times over the podcast, but 
Saint Seraphim of Viritsa, it's not he's not Saint Seraphim of Sarov. This is a saint who lived a hundred years after Saint Seraphim of Sarov, but he had very similar I guess he lived he lived in northern Ukraine. So northern Ukraine slash Belarus, like right on the border in Viritsa. So if you can geographically imagine it, that land was almost immediately conquered by Nazi Germany after Plan Barbarossa came into effect in July 1941, when I guess the, the Germans, the Nazi Germans invaded the Soviet Union. So Saint Seraphim lived actually for four years under Nazi occupation. And this is when most of his prophecies came to be. And he passed away in 1949. So you can imagine he lived essentially his, uh, I guess, his elder life under Stalin from the 1920s until the 19... Like he didn't out, Stalin died in 53, Saint Seraphim died in 49. So, but Saint Seraphim, his prophecies are incredibly powerful. He's not a very well-known saint, even though his asceticism is quite astounding. The things that which he did in his life, as well as, of course, living under Nazi occupation, still trying to serve the liturgy, things like that. He went through a lot of difficulty and um, his prophecies are very striking because they're just the... Um, besides the one I'm reading now, there's a, there's a few more of them, but he basically just kind of says it how it is, and yeah, it's just very, very powerful. I think Russians especially try to like take this stuff very seriously, but of course, let me just read the prophecy um, without further ado. Uh, the storm will pass over the Russian land. The Lord will forgive the Russian people their sins, and in the divine and holy beauty, the cross will shine brightly above the Church of Christ once more. And the ringing of bells will awaken all our holy roofs to salvation from the slumber of sin. Holy monasteries will open anew, and faith in God will unite all. The salvation of the world is from Russia. Like, really powerful final statement there. Essentially, he's claiming, well, Saint Seraphim, through his clairvoyance, God is telling us that Russia will be a, an engine, a tool of God to provide missionary work and spread orthodoxy around the world. I think like that's nothing short of the truth, at least at this point. Maybe not at the moment, because Russia's a little bit preoccupied, but in the future, I think we will see Russia as a shining example of something that something great that God will use. Well, and speaking of seraphims, what did uh, Father Seraphim Rose say that I mean, in the early 20th century, in the the 40s and 50s, he believed, he, even then, he was like, oh, there will be a new czar in Russia. Like, not just, you know, a figurative czar, perhaps like some people call, you know, what, what that, that Putin is embodying, that idea, but like a real czar. And like, and that, and again, I have no, no predictions on when that will happen exactly, but that's what someone else who comes after this, that very much this tradition in America, who opened hol a holy monastery in America, and who wrote so many of these works and things against you know, modern deceptions of our time, like, like signs in the sky and UFOs and charismaticism and all these sorts of things. And seeing him, like, he's not a son of Russia himself, but he's a son of the Russian church. And in fact, I believe a fellow Anglo like me in America who was able to, was able to return home to truth. Yeah, I think it's important to just understand that, like, um, notice how the, the Orthodox church is so it's just so organic and it kind of it naturally not only empowers the nation in which it in which it's active for example the russian nation the the ukrainian nation the belarusians the orthodox church empowers the people and those who are members of it their own culture is enhanced and their own nation benefits for example like okay well when the russian church came to the rescue of the georgian church in the 1800s so this is uh, right before the napoleonic wars occurred um georgia asked to join russia as in like to become a member of russia of the russian empire and the georgian princes signed an agreement with the russian emperor to join 
their all their lands of this is not American Georgia, the state, but we're talking about Georgia in the Caucasus. So Georgia and the Caucasus, all those princedoms joined the Russian Empire and became, a, I guess, a member of it. They were they were annexed officially. Um, now, what's interesting is the Georgian population, and this is very interesting because modern Georgians notice how they really dislike dislike Russia for various political reasons. But historically, Georgians between 1800 and the beginning of World War One, their population I, I believe it either tripled or quadrupled demographically. So, and the Russian church aided the Georgian church a lot in terms of like reinforcing Orthodox faith, which was in many ways fallen. The Georgian people were in great despair. Even their saints, like the level of sainthood fell greatly in the last 50 years prior to this in Georgia. Like there were like almost no saints. The, the bishops were you know, basically running farmlands. Everyone, every, the whole country was a mess. And the Russian empire essentially came in with its clergy, assisted the Georgian church and look, the Orthodox Church, and notice the Georgian language and culture wasn't extinguished either. So this little local populace, Russia could have easily assimilated it and, you know, com completely destroyed Georgian autonomy and Georgian, the Georgian ethnos would have disappeared. But the Orthodox faith is not a racist one, nor is it a, an entirely modernist cosmopolitan one either. It kind of preserves while at the same time enhancing, but it's like a unity, but there is still distinction. It's uh, it's very theological, frankly. Wouldn't you agree, Conrad? Like, there's, I'm noticing. Well, look, if you're yeah. not able to under, like, look, the essence energies distinction is the only way to truly comprehend unity and multiplicity within the Godhead and the Triad. In the same way that it's the only, like, in the same way that level of understanding and nuanced revelation is going to affect how we view really hard civilizational questions like race and language and things like that. Mm. And I think the evidence of that is in the. And in many ways, people talk about how the world isn't going to be able to end until the gospel is preached at all four corners of the glo of the world. And we believe part of why the world hasn't ended yet is because while Orthodoxy has been a lot a bit slower in getting to places like South America and you know the South Pacific and some of these places where Roman Catholicism already is, we believe that is part of why the world hasn't quite you know ended yet because some of these places still need to hear the true the word of the true church. Yeah, and I'm just gonna in regards to multiplicity and. And but at the same time, not actually, uh, you know, you know, the, the, I guess the, the, I'll just read a quote from Saint Lawrence of Chernigov now, which I think will. It's a very powerful quote. I've tweeted it a couple times, and every time I've tweeted it, this is a real quote from him. It does trigger a lot of um, hatred, especially from the NATO folks, from the pro-Ukrainian, from the libs, the commies. They really hate this quote. So Saint Lawrence takes it upon himself to say the following words. He says. As it is impossible to divide the most holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for it is one God, so it is impossible to divide Russia, the Ukraine, and Belarus, for these together are holy Rus. Know this, remember this, and do not forget. That's the quote. It's like, very straightforward. Again, notice there is a, there's a certain diversity there between the three, but at the same time, they are one, united. And of course, uh, it's a very powerful analogy comparing the, you know, the, Rus the Russian, I guess, uh, culture to the Holy Trinity. Very, I guess, very strongly spoken, especially in St. Lawrence's time. It's probably like a last resort in terms of you know, which analogy you want to make. But in St. Lawrence's time, this is when the Ukraine was officially, you know, becoming annexed and, and Khrushchev was, I think, connecting Crimea to Ukraine. So it was a really tumultuous time because the Soviets actually um, pushed the pushed uh, the idea of an independent Ukraine, I guess. They really promoted it, not independent in terms of like a geographical and statehood sense, but in terms of a cultural distinction, they really tried to emphasize that. And St. Lawrence kind of 
powerfully stated here, there will be no schisms. Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus need to be united, not just in a um, religious and a church sense, in an administrative sense, but in a cultural sense. But notice how he doesn't say, well, Ukrainian culture must be wiped out. Belarusian culture must be wiped out. No, it's, he's just saying that they're united, but let's face the reality. These are, all three of these are holy Rus. And just as in the Georgian example, Russia and Georgia were united for about 100 years. The Georgian population tripled or quadrupled in the empire. This is like, you can read about this, like what, like this is incredible growth, okay? Then this is not even crazy technological innovations, probably didn't even reach the Caucasus, let's be, let's be honest here, in those 100 years. But the population literally tripled, quadrupled, and the Georgian culture was not wiped out under the protection of Russia. So we have an essentially an ethnic minority surviving and thriving under the alongside a larger ethnic minority, which is also thriving and surviving. So I think these are really good things to keep in mind, especially for folks in the right wing and in the, I guess, members of the base department on Twitter, that the Orthodox faith, it accommodates for nationalisms of all sorts. But you need to keep in mind, we're coming at this not from a materialistic perspective, but firstly, a spiritual one. Exactly. And these people might be scandalized by those kinds of things. But frankly, the scriptures say that all the nations will bow, you know, will come before Christ. You know, these, the, the identifier of you as your nation is a way that Jesus Christ sees you. Not so like people think that borders and ethnicity is fake. No, Jesus thinks it's real. So let's, you know, let's, let's, let's kind of stop with these silly academic, you know, post-World War II nonsense games. But I was just going to say before we move on to some other, I'll let you say what you have to say too, but we want to move on to some more words of St. Lawrence, which somehow are going to get even more, you know, contentious and controversial and everything. But and we're also going to circle it back to Georgia a little bit as well. I just wanted to read before we get too far away from Father Seraphim Rose, that very recently, uh, Metropolitan Nikolos of Georgia, a very well-respected bishop of the Georgian church, came to America and said, all the leaders of my country have great veneration for these two men, meaning Father Seraphim Rose and uh, Brother Jose Munoz, who was murdered in Greece on Halloween by Satanists. Uh, he says, all the leaders of my country have great veneration for these two men. Our church, the Georgian Orthodox Church, has made a decision not to canonize these two individuals uh, because we are waiting for the canonization of these two men by the church of which they belong to. Uh, he says he feels it is his duty to travel to various local Orthodox churches and speak out in favor of the canonization of a very important righteous monk. He's talking about Father Seraphim. And I will say that my diocese, who he is the head of, each diocese is like a local church. I have the rights to popularize the lives and deaths of saints and venerate them. And in my diocese, these two men, Father Seraphim Rose and Brother Jose, are venerated as saints. He said that last month. And just, you know, to make sure that we, we talk about Georgia and everything, in many ways, Georgia, while they do have some problems with interacting with the GAE, their church has done a very good job of preserving what I consider the true ecumenical Orthodox tradition, like the true pan-Orthodox tradition, where they do a very good job of venerating Russian saints, of venerating Serbian saints, and they venerate American saints, perhaps even better than some Americans do. So, you know, seeing Georgia preserved in that way, I think that we have, I'll also, after uh, Dimitri reads some more from St. Lawrence, I've got a bit from St. Gabriel of Georgia to say that we'll kind of tie, tie all this together. Very well said. I think I think absolutely. Those those great saints in Georgia, even if locally they, they they start becoming venerated, it's just a matter of time before that veneration spreads, of course, across the world. And hopefully, the Russian Church outside of Russia, Rokor, will of course, you know, kind of um, spearhead the canonization process, and we can all venerate them uh, in our churches with icons, and it'll be great celebration. I think in the twenty first century, when these saints are made official. Now, if you want to read about, say, Saint Seraphim Rose, or uh, you know, the future Saint um, Joseph, uh, actually, 
probably one of the first uh, South American saints as well, Saint uh, Jose, right? So his name in baptism was Joseph. He was a South American. Now, I'm not going to go into his life, but if you'd want to read more about him, you could follow us at, at WorldWarNow underscore Twitter or uh, at Orthodox Canonist or at Nomrad and on Twitter and just follow. We do write about these great people. And sometimes it's even harder to, I guess, in a podcast setting, we'll need to release some special episodes just literally focusing on their lives because they're just... Um, it's hard to even fit them in a short segment such as this one. Um, there really, there really is a lot of fruitfulness in terms of reading about these great saints, and even in a in a place such as Twitter. But of course, you can do your own research to so read about Jose Munoz of Rocor. Uh, I think it's very important to sort of uh, appreciate these future saints in the church. Now, Saint Lawrence of Chernigov, uh, we spoke about him plenty of times throughout most of the episodes. Now, his prophecies are, I guess, um, the the last jewel in this crown at the end of uh, Father Joseph's, uh, actually, yeah, followed by St. Seraphim of Sarah's prophecy. So we have St. Lawrence of Chernigov, and he, now, I'm going to read these prophecies now, just listen to it piously and with reverence, okay? Because I guess most of these prophecies need to be understood with reverence. It's not like a, whoa, like really epic base. No, it should be, these these words are from the Holy Spirit, so it should be understood in a very reverent way. Um, so St. Lawrence says, the whole choir of Russian saints, together the Mother of God, begs to spare and have mercy on Russia. Then he follows. Russia, together with all the Slavic nations and lands, will constitute a mighty tsardom, so a mighty kingdom. At its helm will be an orthodox tsar. Anointed by God, the tsar will be from God. All schisms and heresies will vanish in Russia. There will, be, there will not be any persecution of the orthodox church. The Lord will have mercy on Holy Rus, because in her... There had been terrible, terrible times preceding the Antichrist. The great, regi the great uh, re regiment of martyrs and confessors who has shown forth beginning of the highest spiritual and civil ranks, metropolitan and tsar, priest and monk, children and even nursing infants, ending of lay people. All these will beseech the Lord God, the King of hosts, the King of kings, glorified in the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, Amen, brother. Amen. St. Lawrence is telling us that, you know, he's pretty much, and notice this is the first prophecy which pretty much speaks specifically about what will happen, and he speaks about a political order, about um, a geopolitical order as well, a unity of Slavic nations. I mean, kind of hard to imagine, especially after things, I mean, again, our imagination is fallible and human, and of course we're bound by the materialistic sinfulness of the world, but after things such as Yugoslavia, after the current, I mean, the two Slavic nation brothers fighting now Ukraine and Russia. Well, it's not that simple, but, you know, on the ground level, it may appear it may appear like that. But notice, he says, schisms, heresies will vanish. Perse no, the persecution will cease. And St. Lawrence, during his time, the communist regime in the Soviet Union was still persecuting Orthodox Christians. So for this to be said out loud was a little bit far. Even, even priests would raise an eyebrow because, you know, it's like, well, what are you talking about, uh, you know, Father Lawrence? How can... You know, how can the persecution suddenly just finish like that? Because we're in the middle of persecution now. But nevertheless, he has said these things. And then he mentioned, of course, that all the saints in heaven are praying for Holy Russia. And the, all the martyrs, all the confessors who passed away in the Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia at the hands of the communists, they're all in heaven asking God, begging him for mercy. And I think, Conrad, just there's, there's the fact that, look, he mentions monarchy. He mentions that. All the Orthodox people will be united under a, an, an imperial monarchy, a tsar, anointed by God. I mean, that's pretty amazing and very staggering. 
Well, and I just want to say for anybody who's in our comments can be like, oh, this isn't biblical. Where is this in the Bible? Well, I think what he's saying is just the obvious biblical conclusion of James 5. I mean, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And uh, no nation has more martyrs that have been recently, um, I guess you could say, made than Russia. So if the prayer of righteous men availeth much, and we have a cloud of witnesses, and we believe that the saints in heaven are praying for us, then it would only make sense that Russia would have what you might call a a, a spiritual advantage when it comes to the time of Antichrist. And and the, I guess the real implication from this, and this is where we want to be a bit careful, is that it sounds that the Antichrist isn't that far away. Because, I mean, this is referencing Antichrist in the sense that the, the persecutions under the Soviets will still be, like, relevant in history, you know? Like, it's, this isn't necessarily 2,000 years from now. So I, th- I just think that's interesting. And when it comes to, uh, you know, countries being— re- Actually, I'll, I'll get your thoughts on that first, Dimitri. No, absolutely. I think and it aligns with not just this prophecy in particular, but the next one will read the final prophecy in this article by F- Father Joseph. Notice the prophecy does speak of, uh, you know, the Tsar coming, the— um, the, the kingdom, you know, being led by Russia, Russia participating in it, and the fact that, well, uh, you know, the Antichrist will not sort of, will not, I guess, dominate the entire world completely. It's a very hopeful message. Um, I, I'm just a little bit, I think, uh, first when I read this prophecy about 10, 15 years ago, I was a little bit taken aback because I was always, I always had the idea that, well, the Antichrist will, of course, dominate the entire world and rule the entire, you know, the whole world will be taken. Um, you know, it's it's quite it's quite a depressing message. And that Orthodox people should prepare for. I think, in any case, Orthodox people should prepare for if the world, if the end does come, to be under the rule of the Antichrist and to live in those sort of conditions. We shouldn't be too white pilled about. Oh well, what if we end up in, say, the most based part of the nation, which will be independent from, you know, the globalist world order that will be ruled out of Jerusalem by the by the king and high priest there. You know, who I'm speaking about. Um, I think it's it's good to just be prepared. There's a certain prepper. I'm not trying to mean, but there's a prepper mindset which goes into this. I think for everyone curious to read more, I haven't actually read this book in its entirety. I've read a few chapters from it and watched some of the fantastic interviews with the author, uh, Dr. G.M. Davies, on uh, the Orthodox Ethos channel with Father Peter Hears. But he wrote a book, Antichrist, uh, about globalization in our times and stuff. And he talks about a lot of the stuff we're talking about. Even And he himself even mentions that, you know, we need to be prepared for it to maybe be closer than we think because, you know, I mean... It's not just rumors. Many people say like they have a they have a what many would call the third temple already pre-constructed, and you know, and, and we hear all this from they have a mock Sanhedra now, and they even do fake animal sacrifices, preparing for perhaps future animal sacrifice on the Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. Which we'll get into some of this other stuff when we transition away from these specific prophecies. But uh, do you want to talk about Saint Seraphim, Dimitri? Yeah, let's just mention the final prophecy by by Saint Seraphim of Sarov. Now, Saint Seraphim of Sarov was a saint who predominantly lived in the 18th century, but passed away in 1833. So, didn't essentially didn't live e- even up to I guess what a lot of Russians would consider the end of the Russian Empire. He lived essentially at its peak, at its when it was at its peak strength. When you had, you know, people like great uh, Admiral Ushakov was around. You know, General Suvorov was around. You had, you know, this is the reign of Saint, you know, Empress Catherine the Great, and of course future Saint uh, Paul the Emperor of Ru- Russia. You had, and Saint Seraphim was alive at this time, and this is the prophecy which he gives. He says, everything that bears the label of decembrists or decembrists. Yeah. Decembrists were essentially revolutionists. Now, let me just continue the prophecy. But uh, yeah, reformers, and in, the world, and in a word, belongs to the party for the betterment of life, 
is genuinely anti-Christian, which in evolving will bring about the destruction of Christianity and then part of orthodoxy upon the earth, and which will finally end with the enthronement of the Antichrist over all the nations of the world except Russia. She will come together into a single united body with the other Slavic nations and compromise a huge ocean, one mighty realm, fierce unto the foes of Christ, before, all, before which all the tribes of the earth will quail in fear. And this is as sure as 2 plus 2 is 4. That's pretty powerful. And uh, regarding some of that, like Saint Seraphim is one of the, he's considered one of the most powerful saints of the last 500 years. He's his, his powerful intercessor. He's, he was a very holy, big revival person who initiated revival of monasticism in Russia. And he was uh, canonized by Tsar Nicholas II. And um, there's the, the, Dimitri has a, another interesting story about a trench that we're going to talk about that's very it's relevant. But uh, when it comes, we've talked a lot about the royal martyrs and how even you know those might be the enthroned women that were talked about in the uh, the prophecies of Saint of the other Saint Seraphim. Oh, we know that or that was uh, the other saint. Regardless, when Saint Seraphim was canonized by the Tsar during the reign of Emperor Nicholas II. Before that, he was visiting the monasteries and was uh, big, big, already was venerating Seraphim before he was a saint and was you know, preparing for his canonization. We're being a very, you know, a holy royal family, like in many ways at the time, you know, that, that the Russians had been doing in the past. You know, these it was a holy ruse. This empire was an orthodox empire. And uh, at one point, they uh, came to the monastery and the nuns gave the czar on a, on a, like a silver platter. They gave him this letter that had been preserved from Saint Seraphim by one of by his uh, by kind of his lay disciple Motovilov, who is one of the main reasons we have so many of the stories of Saint Seraphim, and the letter was delivered to the Tsar, and um, it's not known exactly what it is said, but it, the, Saint Seraphim had told them to give it to the Tsar that can't, that is to canonize him, and it said that after he read it, he was you know extremely upset and was you know in a, in a state of you know depressed contemplation for a long time, and, and so it's understood largely by the Church that it likely foretold his martyrdom. Yeah, and uh, not just that. I think not only would it would the letter have a prophecy, in it, which, mind you, as Conrad just said, we don't know the contents of the letter that was given to Emperor Nicholas right at the end of his reign. Now, notice that Saint Seraphim passed away in 1833, and Emperor Nicholas may only have received this letter in like uh, 1903 at the earliest, between 1903 and 1914. So, notice it's been about 80 years, and this letter had a message to him specifically, and so the local nuns provided that letter, as Conrad said, to the emperor himself. And it was like a very powerful statement. Essentially, it's a, it's kind of like a, similar to some high schools, you have like people bury like a uh, time capsule, you know, in, in the dirt, and then you dig it up and it has a message for the future. It's not like that exactly, but I guess that's a secular way of, I guess, passing on some sort of message about modern culture to the future. But here we have a literal prophecy for the future Tsar specifically, written by a saint who never knew him, who didn't, who wasn't even born. Um, during his, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't contemporaries at all. And this letter, it was probably, um, and I'm speculating here, but just based on what the what the other church fathers in recent years have written, that well, this this letter probably contained a prophecy, and it was uh, a prophecy to the Tsar that look, the Russian Empire will fall, and you will be the final emperor at least in this lineage, and that uh, you will be martyred, you and your entire family will be killed. And you need to stay strong and hold fast to, you know, hold fast to the church tradition. It was probably something of that nature. Now, unfortunately, there are liberals, uh, not exactly all of them orthodox, but there are some who in the church, they say, well, the letter must have said something like, 
Tsar Nicholas needed to submit to the will of God and, of course, abandon his throne, which people believe he willingly did in February, March 1917, when the um, abdication occurred. <clears throat> abdication in, you know, inverted speech marks, like we're speaking about apparently apparent abdication, which was signed by a pencil on a, on a train when he was taken in custody without, um, you know, I guess, uh, it, yeah. So that's a different subject, but let's just say the liberals in, in the Russian church even used this led this prophetic letter, which St. Seraphim wrote to the Tsar as a sort of way to attack Orthodox monarchy. Um, I guess conservatism by saying, well, St. Seraphim must have just told the Tsar that it's time to transition into a democratic liberal Russia, which is not true. So I just want to give that disclaimer now. That's already been debunked and there's no way that has any grounding behind it. Now, one of the reasons I'm not going to go in too much into a tangent because the crowned empresses who the saints, the elders spoke about, the uh, elder Aristocles of Moscow mentions the crowned, you know, the crowned uh, women praying for Britain. These uh, women, of course, the uh, nobility of Russia, the the noble women from Germany and England would always, or the, once they became Orthodox, they would visit these Orthodox monasteries. And some of these monasteries were those set up by St. Seraphim. So for example, Dvyeva, it's one of the largest monasteries in Russia. It's about, it's about four or five hours drive outside of Moscow. So it's quite a long journey, but once you get there, it is it's just amazing view. So Dvyeva monastery, it's a, it's a convent, which means it's a female monastery for nuns. And this monastery, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And St. Seraphim, um, I guess I'm just going to mention the trench, the the groove in the earth. It's like a Saint Seraphim during his life while he was building this convent, he was mapping it out. And on one side of the convent, he um, he took a plow and he plowed about two kilometers worth, just the line in the dirt. And of course, he said, at the end of the world, the Antichrist will not, when the Antichrist invades Russia, he will not go past this point here. This trench is the is one of the borders which the Antichrist will not cross. And he's he's going to retreat from here, and so to this day that trench exists, and the, and the monks actually emphasized that by you know actually um, putting in more work into the earth, and so it looks like an actual rampart these days. But there is an actual rampart in this monastery five hours away from Moscow, which Orthodox people in our it's in our tradition we believe that when the Antichrist does come, this trench will be a line of defense against you know the son of Satan himself. So this is like really. This is a really deep, you know, eschatological stuff here. And Saint Seraphim of Sarov, like he is linked, of course, not just to uh, Russian tradition, but of course, all Orthodox people venerate him greatly. So this is not just a message to all Russian Orthodox people. This is a message to all Orthodox people around the world. Like these saints need to be prayed to, they need to be respected. And notice his clairvoyant prophecy. Let's return to it here. He mentions, of course, that um, he mentions the the modernist reformers, the Decemberists, right? He's speaking about the liberals, the Freemasons of his day. Again, liberalism today, we don't even, it's worse than Decemberists and reformers you know, of St. Seraphim's time. These are, these liberals of today are like miles and multiplicities higher and more active and more degenerate than what we, than what I'm sure he saw in his time in the 19th century. Exactly. And before we kind of move out, that we've discussed most of the prophecies we want to talk about and uh, I want to bring up one more, and then Dimitri's going to kind of connect some of this to some of the uh, some of the big things going on in the in the more mainstream news society. I'm looking forward to that. But I just wanted to read from Saint Gabriel of Georgia. I mentioned earlier. He says something similar to Saint Seraphim. He says, 
Georgia will be enlightened in the end days. This will be revealed not materially, but spiritually. Believers from many countries will gather in Georgia. The wicked deeds started by communists are only a prologue. And St. Gabriel existed at the time in the Soviet Union and was actually institutionalized for burning a, uh, a banner of Vladimir Lenin. And uh, he, keeps, he goes on. The worst is ahead. The world has never witnessed such a sorrow from, the time, from time immemorial. Georgia will be protected by the Holy Virgin, as Iveria, which means Georgia, is the country chosen by the Holy Mother of God, Mother of God as her lot. And so he talks about, and again, could Georgia perhaps be, could perhaps this connect with what St. Seraphim and the other St. Seraphim and the other saints are saying about Russia? Mm -hmm. Could they both perhaps be preserved? And we talked about Georgia being this kind of, at least the church being this sort of, uh, you know, bastion of true pan-Orthodoxy. But at the same time, Georgia, the country we know, really struggles with influence from the West. And they, the church does its best to, you know, protest pride parades and drive them out. But the secular authorities there really are really going against that. But just to finish it out with St. Gabriel, he says the most important thing about all this, which is a whole lot more important than any of the, of the politics, is, in the last days, a man will be saved by love, humility, and kindness. Kindness will open the gates of heaven. Humility will lead one into heaven. A man whose heart is filled with love will see God. So I think that's always important to keep in perspective is that all of these things are contingent on repentance and love. And, you know, we could be blessed by the grace of God and some of these horrible things could not come to pass through our prayer or perhaps we push down the road or uh, some of even the good things that we've been told to hope for could be taken away from us. So I think it's important to always have that in perspective. Yeah, amen. I I think it's it's really important. Notice how um, we just need to we need to stay prayerful no matter what the prophecies say, no matter how dire the predictions and how difficult the tribulations ahead of us and no matter how bad the news frankly because uh, we've said many on many episodes the media tends to accentuate and exaggerate the anxiety we face and of course i think it's uh very obvious and even in modern times for example like certain you know inst like notice certain news comes out like people speak their mind openly online for example and uh, they get shut down i think uh like uh, one of the great stories of the week, I think, is probably the famous uh, Amer African American rapper Kanye West. Uh, how he essentially begins speaking his mind, of course, not from an Orthodox perspective, but from a Protestant perspective. Very valid opinion about certain, you know, business folks and globalist communities which dominate dominate discourse, and he's basically speaking out against folks who have apparently oppressed him. Now. This is not just your usual sort of uh, claim of an African-American that, you know, the United States is a racist, white supremacist, you know, sort of nation. But no, this is, he's speaking about more of like an economic sort of a cultural domination. The fact that, notice the, like a pharmaceutical, um, phytopharmaceutical dominion over his life. It's really, um, it's it's really being the news of the week. But how, the, how this relates to geopolitics is just the fact that, notice he he gets completely isolated and taken down all the all of his support and he just says certain things about you know certain communities and cultures and his all all the frameworks of his life get completely dismantled the banks close his accounts the um his sponsors uh he gets it's sort of like a mark of the base type system when you say conrad like you know you don't take the mark and this you know you cannot purchase any food you can't participate in the market in the in the you know the marketplace of ideas you're getting shut down you get isolated you get cancelled like an alex jones and like in one of my tweets i mentioned the fact that well if saint joseph of volotsk was still alive he would he wouldn't have a twitter account he would be suspended there's certain saints who've said such drastic things like some of the prophecies we read today that they simply would not be allowed to speak in in a very sensitive world of today 
No, I mean, just read Adversus Judeus from St. John Chrysostom. I mean, that would be, I think that's illegal in most of Europe, probably. But I think when it comes to what Kanye is saying and everything, Peugeot, Jonathan Peugeot, who we really enjoy, he's had a good, he had some good comments on this, that be sure, don't dismiss the fool. He, he, he puts Kanye as kind of fulfilling this fool archetype who's very important in society because the fool is free to mock who the others are not free to mock. You know, the court jester is given permission perhaps to mock the king. And we're kind of seeing that Kanye perhaps doesn't so much have permission as he's sort of taking permission, but it's important to recognize, you know, that 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 he is he he might be a bit of a performative person and he might you know have you know be not be the i think he's a decent communicator but not the most amazing you know uh concise erudite communicator but he is fulfilling this very important role that i think has actually been gone from modern society for so long and is part of why we've able to we've been able to see such a narrative dominance from secular globalist forces yeah and like notice it's it's the same globalist forces who tend to support ukraine no matter what so again geopolitically speaking remember it's the what is the current thing the current thing was COVID. the current thing was uh, shutting down alex jones finding him the current thing is now oh kanye is this really evil bigoted man but notice kanye is just speaking his mind at the end of the day he's just an example and he's a I mean, he's he's a Protestant Christian, but he's still a Christian. He still believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He believes in the Holy Trinity. Like he does have, you know, he doesn't follow the exact theology of the Nicene Creed or Orthodoxy, but he has these ideas. And notice how he's just being shut down mercilessly. Again, we spoke about love and the fact that um, all Christians should act of love. But these forces opposing, say, not just Kanye, but I guess uh, conservatism and um, Christianity in the world, these forces aren't Christians. So don't they don't do things with love? It's it's usually like the same hatred we see online towards Russia today. It's like very infused, very, um, it's, uh, it's violent, it's cruel, it's torturous. This isn't, has, this is a, has nothing to do with Christian tradition or, you know, uh, I guess the Christian church, uh, tradition going back thousands of years. This is something completely different. It's almost like a completely different religion and probably related to whatever globalist project they have for the end of the world, frankly. This is um, a prototype of the Antichrist system of censorship, which I'm sure he will use on the aforementioned, you know, forefather Enoch and the prophet Elijah when the end times come to kind of put a halt to their prophecies as well. So, um, and then I'm, I'm not comparing, of course, Kanye to prophet Elijah, but the fact that, you know, someone like Kanye is, can't even speak his mind, and he is, he's just a rapper, like he said, some pretty crazy stuff in the past, like he's, he's an African-American musician. I'm sure he can be given some leeway to speak his mind, but apparently not. Apparently what he's saying is completely absurd and um, it's not allowed. It's, uh, yeah, it should be censored. I think that's, uh, it's worth paying attention to that sort of piece of news. And if you, I guess if you're an Orthodox Christian, um, just watch what's happening to Kanye and then apply that to a Christian saint. If, if Kanye was a Christian bishop saying these things, and the censorship was the same, how would you react to it? Well, for example, like the things he's saying aren't exactly the most absurd. It, you know, take, take things, you know, investigate, do your reading, take, you know, don't take things at face value. Definitely use your, you know, use your discretion. That's always advised. But again, um, if Kanye was an Orthodox Christian, would you support his sort of, um, his censorship? Probably not. So I suppose, um, yeah, that's kind of my message is just to discernfully read these news and see how they apply to the world. Because I think what we're seeing now with Kanye's censorship is an example of uh, what is to come, at least for us conservative Orthodox Christians in the West. And not just Orthodox, but all Christians in the West.
Yeah, I mean, Kanye might not be orthodox yet, but he has spoken positively of Putin. He's spoken positively of monasteries. His ex-wife, his his children are baptized, you know, Armenian Orthodox, at least some of them, which is about as close to true to, to real orthodoxy as you can get while still, you know, being in the wrong church. But so he is aware of some of these things. You know, he 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 praised Putin for building monasteries and re-Christianizing Russia, which just that fact alone is just so funny to us that we, you know, we started the show and then Kanye is talking about this and then the war and everything. But uh, in many ways, the people coming after Kanye, it's the exact same people that want you to support a war with Russia. And Kanye's also just blowing the lid off of, you know, the whole, in many ways, MK Ultra handler control kind of stuff where, I mean, he just showed his freaking personal trainer who is clearly some kind of intelligence military operative comes out of the Canadian military industrial complex and has every single famous person as a client. That man apparently feels he can just tell the, one of the richest black people in the world that he's just going to institutionalize him and take him from his kids. And that is, the Kanye was smart releasing that because it doesn't matter how much, how opinionated people might be on some of the other stuff he said. That's, that crosses a line for anybody. So I, I do view this as a, as a turning point in the public consciousness. Yeah, I think the whole, the idea of, um, you know, psychological warfare, MK Ultra, like this is real stuff. If you think MK Ultra and mind control is fake and not real, like you are... And I mean, from a Christian perspective, you are just straight up wrong. And yes, this has already been used on saints. I'm sure many of you are unaware, or maybe you are aware of the confessors and martyrs of the Romanian Orthodox Church. So this is, of course, <clears throat> the land. Romania is a country in Central Europe. You may have heard of it because that's where like Andrew Tate lives. But no, it's an actual, it goes beyond just Andrew Tate. This is a country next to Hungary. It's a very ancient uh, Orthodox land. Now, Romania, during the Soviet times, there were confessors and martyrs there, which were... The, so, so the Soviets wanted to turn Romania from a Christian country into an atheist country. Now, how they did that was they captured monks and priests and they tortured them psychologically in... It's probably some of the most... Now, I don't recommend exactly reading it, but I guess for perspective, you can read about some of the things which happened to these uh, great Orthodox martyrs of the 20th century in Romanian camps. It is... Uh, it is, yeah, and yeah, it's psychological in nature. They made Orthodox monks turn against their brothers, and they made, essentially, they made the prisoners torture themselves and each other through psychological means, essentially. So, psych warfare is a real thing. And the other thing, of course, we remember, this is not discussed much, but in the Soviet Union, especially towards the later end, when officially persecution ended in the late 50s, um, it persisted into the 60s, 70s, and 80s through a very subtle, subtle form, which even today isn't investigated much. There are a few PhD papers on this subject, but um, there's a, there was a there was an idea that well, if if a person kept talking about orthodoxy, or you know, someone just kept talking about prophecy and the things we spoke about on this post podcast, frankly, if you mentioned this too much, or you were spreading pamphlets or just talking about, you know, if you're acting like a fool for Christ, like Jonathan Peugeot describes Kanye, you would be institutionalized in a psych ward. And forever. So you, your consent would not be asked for. You would be put on meds for life for 20, 30, 40 years. Solzhenitsyn slightly writes about this in some of his works in the 90s, but I think the subject hasn't been explored much. There are many Orthodox people, and not just Orthodox, but lib libtard dissidents as well, and other anti-Soviet people who were institutionalized in Soviet psych wards and put on mind-altering medication throughout the Soviet Union, including this is including Orthodox Russian priests. Okay, so uh, the fact that we have this um, this weirdo globalist handler businessman type guy telling Kanye that, yeah, look, if you don't shut your mouth, we're going to institutionalize you. We're going to put you on meds. It's really hearkening. It really throws back to our archipelago gulag and, you know, like to these like 
primordial themes of wait wait a minute this is like sort of this is just torture it's 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 confessorship it's you know essentially anti-christian forces using uh using these uh methods on christian people to shut them up like this is this is happening in real terms and there's a history to it too like and so orthodox christian people don't ignore the the mk ultra side of things this is this has a real precedent unfortunately we live in a world now where psychological technology is used against christians and we have literal saints who are victims of it okay so it's not something that should be denied or dismissed I think it actually perfectly displays the differences between the two systems of Western and Eastern oppression of the 20th century. In the East, you had people locked in cells and they ran speakers in there and they tortured them and they broke them down and they just, just full hand force, you know, blunt force trauma, like that level of interaction. Whereas in the West, they got us to do it all to ourselves. They, they Through capitalism and business, they gave us a prosperous society and then they told us that the worldview that gave us that prosperous society will also lead you, you know, it means you have to be happy. And so then you get, you know, big pharma and all these sorts of things. And that's how you get the situation we're in now with Kanye, where you've already signed up so many of these institutions that can then reach out and grab you. In many ways, it's easier to spiritually resist if you know your, if your enemy is just stabbing you in front of you, as opposed to, you know, trying to convince you that, you know, it's actually the best and that everyone around you actually thinks it's good. You know, it's, it's in many ways, it's, you know, 1984 versus Brave New World and Brave New World has turned out to be a bit more of an accurate reflection of, of what we experience today. And it shows that how in many ways that communist persecution at the time was actually a blessing to these Orthodox nations, protecting it both from the creeping tide of liberalism, where you slowly but surely just change your beliefs. And now blessed with thousands and hundreds of thousands of martyrs and confessors praying for them in heaven, protecting them from future persecutions. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we need to remember that no matter what, say, someone like Kanye faces, what we as, like, we as, and those who are, all of us who are Orthodox Christian, we should not be afraid of, say, these, uh, these forces of the world coming upon us and harassing us and fighting us and just basically assaulting us of all kinds of all kinds of you know these material means because at the end of the day and even spiritual means frankly because prayer you know, prayer the sacraments they do defeat all of these um tools of the devil at the end of the day and and frankly even if you face death and torture you know what awaits you is the crown of martyrdom and confessorship at the end of you know at the end of your earthly road so there's no there's no need to despair at the end of all this i mean this is in the lives of martyrs this is how the church came to be in the early centuries all of the apostles faced violent and uh, death's not by their own hands, except Apostle St. John, the evangelist who, whom we spoke about at the beginning of this episode. And just need to remember that, that we don't exactly have an easy road as Christians here on earth. And of course, I'm sure in the Islamic tradition, there's this own understanding of, you know, facing your enemy and having tenacity and not, not being intimidated. But I, but I guess we do face this common Dajjal in the West. And notice how even Kadyrov and all these uh, Iranians, they all, they have this common understanding. They're like, okay, this... This Western evil, which, as Conrad mentioned, slowly destroys our culture, it needs to be faced. Like, even if Muslims and Orthodox Christians do not agree, at least we agree in this one thing that this Western... Um, by Western, I don't even mean Western as in, oh, it's Western and it's bad. No, it's just this globalist, I guess we call it what it is, a globalist Western liberalism, is the particular tool of the devil at the moment being used to dismantle conservative societies around the world, whether they're Muslim, Christian... Orthodox Christian especially, of course. These are all, all of these things are being destroyed. And I would even say Orthodox Jewish society needs to be very wary of exactly what liberalism can bring to, to them. So um, I think all these things need to be taken into account. 
Well, maybe if Orthodox Jews can start to realize <clears throat> this from that political side, they can also start to then see who the true, you know, Messiah is in some of these regards. Because we do believe that at some regard, like those those Jews who reject Christ will be the main force of Antichrist. But before that happens, some of them will accept Christ because we, you know, some there will because that'll be the end. You know, like that'll be where the the line gets really drawn. So some of them, we need to pray that. You know, even even our greatest enemies, we need to pray that they also convert. And I think this is a, uh, I think this is a good. Unless you want to say one other thing, Dimitri, I think we're we're, we're nearing the end here. So I just want to talk about a few things regarding, uh, you know, the Black Sea, Ukraine, some politics, Nord Stream stuff. We'll talk about that for maybe five, ten minutes, and then land the plane. But anything else you wanted to say, Dimitri? No, I think the prophecy angle, we can speak about it for hours, obviously. But it's just the, I guess this article by Father Father Joseph. Father Joe, you can read it on his Substack. So the article's title, if you just Google these words, Antichrist will reign everywhere except Russia. And it's a Substack article. The Substack name is movingtorussia.substack.com. You can give it a read there. It only takes about five, six minutes to read. But of course, it's a good one to bookmark because having read these sources in Russian, Father Joe's translation here is actually spot on and he does provide citations and things. So it's, the article is actually very good on the Substack. I would bookmark it for the future because, or even print it out because, you know, if the internet, if the Substack goes down, you might want to have this on record. These prophecies are real. They are substantiated. So yeah, do keep a, a clear account of them. Oh yeah, that's very true. And be sure to follow Father Joe's newsletter and some of the other stuff he does on Substack. And we're probably, we're going to have Father Joe on actually next week. So uh, if that doesn't happen, apologies for saying this. Some things could come up. But as of now, we're planning on doing that. And regardless, we will be interviewing Father Joe in the near future. So uh, look forward to that. I'm very much looking forward to it. But to get into some of the last few things we've got to talk about on this on this, on this this here podcast is uh, some of the stuff with Russia. We know with Turkey, we, we really like to talk about Russia-Turkey on this show. The grain deal became very contentious. Russia pulled out of that grain deal that allowed uh, certain Ukrainian ships to go... Uh, to be marked as, you know, a humanitarian food aid to not be searched by Russian ships. Turkey was facilitating this as well as they are the other main power on the Black Sea, you know, with the Bosphorus and everything, which is so relevant to the the current climate. But uh, right now, Russia, they left it, and now they're getting back into it. And then Turkey kind of was really mad and even asserted that even if Russia wasn't in, they would still be protecting Ukrainian ships. So we're seeing a bit of, we're finally seeing some friction between what was otherwise a stalwart kind of alliance with Erdogan and uh, and Putin. But finally, as as Metropolitan Yofito said, as if overnight the Russians and Turks will turn on each other. So it's like we might start to see what, something that could perhaps precipitate, or at least the type of conflict when it comes to control over the Black Sea that could precipitate a turn in Russo-Turkish relations. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's, um, important just to understand as well that Russians still have certain forces in Syria still there, but the only connection between the Syrian Russian forces and Russia itself is you know through the Bosphorus Strait. So all the infrastructure they built in um, in Syria, in Damascus, in the port of Tartu, like these all these all these uh, connections that the Russians have to the Mediterranean, they all flow through Turkey. So Turkey, you know, limiting Russian transport, for example, would mean would have huge geopolitical implications on. On, I guess, Russian uh, external, you know, foreign policy outlook in the future. If Russia ever wishes to return to Syria, you know, to sort of rebuild and to invest, I mean, yeah. And the grain deal, of course, it just shows Russia's approach to this point has been essential, like especially soft towards the Ukrainians. I think 
And this is one of the bizarre things. The bridges over the Dnieper River are still active. The Ukrainians are still transporting vehicles, machinery, etc. Military, like not humanitarian and food, but especially military, like tanks are going over these bridges. The bridges are still there. They're still standing. Electricity until the last month has been completely untouched. Gas has still flown through the Russian pipes into the Ukrainian homes and military bases as well. So um, the Russians are really taking a very hands-off approach. Not hands-off, but... I suppose like a soft approach, a very humanitarian way they're, they're conducting this war and special military operation in a very, um, I guess, a very Christian way in a sense. Like they're really giving the Ukrainians almost every opportunity to at one point sit down at a negotiations table, which frankly should have happened in April in Turkey um, and, you know, communicate the, you know, both of their um, opinions and then of course sign a peace treaty. But it's just not happening. Zelensky, for whatever reason, like the madman that he is, is continuing with this lunacy. And now, of course, we're speaking about grain shipments being, you know, delayed and these countries arguing over, say, um, food. Now, notice we're coming up to winter now. So, yeah, what happens during the winter? Of course, uh, famously, this, you know, we have images in our heads come up of like the Golodomor, you know, um, and Ukraine right now is already having food shortages, gas shortages, there's issues because, of course, in the, in the conflict, it's not like the gas and electricity is being intentionally destroyed. I mean, now it is, but it hasn't been for the entire year. It's it's that there are, there will be actual, almost natural disaster-like implications on this territory that is um, in the conflict now. I think I think it's this will have huge rundown effects if if this grain thing doesn't pan out as say I don't know um, in the Ukraine in the Ukrainian favor. Oh, and it's one of those things where Erdogan is, you know, very much flexing his muscles here because he knows that in some sense Russia needs to keep him on their side. But we, again, we talk about his time is coming up. He's got elections and he is not the favorite to win. So that like the, the just do not underestimate how much the Turkish elections are going to shift the balance of power because Turkey is the most powerful military in NATO besides the United States. So it's 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 just one of the most relevant countries when it comes to literally our entire podcast as well as just anybody's geopolitical analysis and unless dimitri has anything else he wants to say on turkey erdogan elections maybe some prophecies about that i want to briefly at least it would be i would be remiss to not mention the liz truss phone stuff so you have anything you want to say dimitri no, I think it's important to move on to like Liz Truss and just exactly that whole conversation, which occurred, of course, Russia, again, being very transparent with sources and what kind of, uh, you know, resources their spies are gathering in the West. And the SMS that Liz Truss sent, you know, um, to Blinken right on the, was it like minutes after the Nord Stream 1 exploded? And she basically messaged Anthony Blinken telling him it's done. Okay, this is... Uh, of course, uh, this event we spoke about for weeks now, finally we have, a, I guess, a main suspect. It's like a murder mystery, an Arthur Conan Doyle novel, and now it's coming to the point of, wait, wait a minute, the murderer is kind of revealing himself. And yeah, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that, Conrad. Like, I think, honestly, it's, uh, I don't know if there's any way to put prosecute Liz Truss. I guess she's not really, um, really a powerful uh, politician anymore in the British scene, but like, um, I'm not sure if is she... Has she exposed herself? Have they gotten too cocky, shall we say? Well, it's definitely a good look for uh, the Brits that they got rid of that disaster. Not that they got, not that they replaced her with anything better, but it's just, uh, I think her incompetence was was showing through even before we realized that. So this is just a bit embarrassing for I think British statecraft as a whole. 
not to say that I'm pro Winston Churchill, but like this is like at least he you know had political gifts. Like this is just <laughs> like this stuff is just embarrassing. And it just and I'll just frankly say it. This is how I would have told you it went down. You get the Brits to do it as close as you can to the Danes. You get the Danes to investigate it, and then they just cover up on the behalf of the Americans. And it was all done at the behest of the State Department. And if you had asked me before any of this came out how it went down, that probably wouldn't have been too far from what I would have told you. So I, 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 I'll just say it. The Russians, are, I think, are completely right. I think their intelligence is totally accurate. Considering how chill they've been with certain things, I don't think they would come out with this randomly. You know what I'm like? Like this is just one of those things where they've they've clearly been putting a lot of effort into the Nord Stream thing, whereas the West has hoped the media would just forget about it because the real consequences are about economically controlling Europe. It's not as even as much a PR thing, but the Russians are making sure that it stays in the public imagination, and that's important. They have done a pretty poor job on the info war, but this is good. Releasing this intelligence is good. Like if like like Liz Truss is now like she's more, she should be more embarrassed than Zelensky. Like you know like this that's more embarrassing than anything Zelensky has done in my opinion. Yeah, and it's an embarrassment of not just the list trust, but the entire NATO stuff. The fact that if, if this if this operation was conducted under the auspices of NATO and within their sort of department of uh, you know covert action, like why why do you have the British Prime Minister sending SMS messages, you know, or messages of any kind, frankly, about about any covert operations, you know, to like it's just it's. It's similar to the Hillary email scandal where Hillary would just destroy the emails like in her Gmail, just completely, um, you know, destroy hard drives, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit absurd. These people, these, I guess these elites of not just British, but I guess American elites, these um, people behind the scenes, they've gotten so outrageously arrogant that they just do things now almost in the open, even if this may have world war free implications like we're entering into like a hot there's a hot war going on the british are providing literal military weapons and then you have the british prime minister herself tweeting it's done after like minutes after a terrorist attack has been conducted like the level of the level of that of audacity is completely like out of this world it's it's incredible and just the um, incompetence of course this is far from churchill level parliamentary tactics this is yeah this is just a, a really um barbaric in a sense oh and it's you know people people wonder part of why i'm interested in non-western politics is because it's just less of like looks a lot of politics is fake to to disagree but like just even pretend if you even have to if you've ever had to research and pretend that some of this western politics stuff is serious you just know how how tiresome it is because it's all fake it's just none of it is it's it's all this kind of crap this kind of stuff that you don't figure out till till way later and then you realize you were just being lied to the whole time and, and speaking of that kind of stuff, you know, I want to hear your thoughts on perhaps some of this Kherson stuff in the south of Ukraine. We're, we're hearing reports that they've evacuated. They haven't evacuated. The flag's up, the flag's down. What's, uh, what's kind of going on there? No, you? so the evacuation is actually happening, but those who are choosing to stay behind, of course, there's the Russians are spreading the message that Kherson is a fortress. We are not abandoning it. And notice the difference. Like a friend of mine, we were just chatting actually last night about this whole situation where we're chatting about the difference between the evacuation that Ukrainians apparently conducted out of Mariupol, where they would, I mean, we, there was footage of Ukrainian as of uh, neo-Nazis just shooting, like there was a car driving out of Mariupol, and they would just stop the car and just shoot the people in the car, the mother, the kids, everybody. Like, they would just kill people who they assumed were Russian spies. They would just, were just refugees evacuating Mariupol before the Russians surrounded it. So... You know, compare how the Kherson people are being evacuated to how the Az Azov folks evacuated uh, Mariupol. In fact, the Azov did never even, the Azov and the Ukrainian military never even evacuated Mariupol. They simply kept the people 
the citizens there as, as meat shields. The Russians are not doing the same. The approach is different. Again, the approach is one of love. It's loving your neighbor. It's defending. I guess Russians don't do everything perfectly. Notice this mobilization. There was like huge admin issues on the on the back end, and you know, even in the war itself, the war, the conflict, the SMO is not going perfectly according to plan, or I guess anybody's plan, frankly. But notice that the Russians are still trying their best in order to conduct things in a very humane, peaceful, uh, systemic fashion. Whereas on the Ukrainian end, we see um, obviously state department funded, NATO trained, just barbarism essentially. It's just. Yeah, it's it's powerful in a brutish way. Like the Azov, you know, they basically said, okay, all the citizens of Mariupol, no one's leaving. Everybody sit at your homes and like let the Russians sort out your evacuation. Like it was just rough. A lot of innocent people ended up dying. But in Kherson here, yes, the Russians are conducting a and basically a very well coordinated evacuation. The Russians are holding the line uh, several kilometers out of Kherson, the city, as well, to you know protect. I guess any civilians actually leaving, and we of course we had reports two weeks ago about the um, the, the barges and the ships uh, crossing crossing you know crossing rivers getting bombed with civilians on on board of course by Ukrainian uh, missiles and it, this this stuff is really despicable. Of course, it's uh, kind of harkens back to say World War Two, like some of the um, Nazi and other atrocities which occurred where you know civilians would get hurt. It's the Zelensky's idea of like a total war is completely absurd, but he is pushing it to the furthest extent. Like he, I mean, obviously at the behest of the State Department and those, um, those dark forces behind the scenes, these uh, globalist forces that are you know kind of influencing him to do to do this. But yeah, in, in terms of Kherson, it's I think it's going well. Consider all things considered, the Russians are prepared for a, a massive Ukrainian push. Hence, they're evacuating the city because if the if the fighting enters into the urban territories, there could be a lot of civilians that would get hurt. So that's just based on what I've been reading. And the Russians are, I mean, they're the the people of Kherson are now Russian citizens. Yes, they're still Malorussians, they're still Ukrainian, I guess you could say ethnically, so to speak. But they are citizens of the Russian Federation, and the Russian, I guess, the Russians need to defend their own. And so they're having planned evacuations, you know, and they're ongoing now. So they're ready for a, a huge Ukrainian push. Yeah, I think we're we're about wrapping up the conversation here, but I want to get your thoughts on one last thing. And this is this is big stuff is we already know that US has admitted to having boots on the ground in Ukraine at this point. They're training people, they have actual soldiers. Uh Russia has hinted that Ukraine may not exist anymore. There's been very much like like the negotiations have never possibly been in a worse place. And they may it may just be over for negotiations. So Dmitry, I just want to know We'll talk about this for two more minutes, maybe, and then end. Do you think that before Nativity or after Nativity, we will see we'll see the true face of the Russian mobilization? I think, frankly, um, it'll probably occur after Nativity, after Christmas, and most likely when when the snow begins to thaw. So we'll probably be looking at the, I guess you can say, stage three or phase three of the special military operation in autumn of next year. So after after the snows have melted, I think the the winter time will essentially cause a sort of a stalemate. Like all the all the frontiers will be will be frozen. No one's going to cross any rivers, and of course there'll be a huge economic crisis, not just in Europe because everything will be cold and get, there's gas shortages because of Nord Stream One getting shut down. But in Ukraine itself, the lack of electricity, lack of gas, the the grain issues. If the if those accentuate, there's going to be huge. Um, it's again. There's going to be a humanitarian crisis, and it's nobody's fault except Zelensky's and his neo-Nazi libtard degenerate government. So let's just remember that at the end of the day. And yes, 
Um, Russians have made mistakes throughout the SMO, but I believe that this winter will be a true test and it's going to be more of a, a literal Cold War rather than a hot one. Are you thinking maybe around the year anniversary of the SMO, we might see phase three start? Would that perhaps be realistic? Yeah, I, I think I think towards the end of winter, especially when the temperatures begin to rise and then, um, of course, uh, Ukraine will, of course, be in a, a much worse state than it is now. Nothing for the Ukrainians will improve. For the Russian side, it's just basically about holding the line and supplying those front front lines. The mobilized troops as well, they're being trained in real time now. But can you imagine in three months time, they're going to know exactly how to operate on those in those particular terrains. They're going to have their um, command structure completely in place. They're going to, you know, they're going to be drilled according to whatever standard the Russian military currently has. And yeah, all the equipment will be in place. So I guess phase three will most likely occur. Yeah, around February 22, February 24. And definitely in March, April. So probably between Christmas and Easter is, uh, as you said, between Nativity and Pascha is when I think things will start to pick up again. But they will slow down soon. That's just my, I guess, prediction based on not just my opinion, but based on things that geopolitical analysts and folks on on Twitter have posted. And I guess, uh, I guess the contemporary, because look, contemporary news is mostly, mostly basically taken not just from mainstream media but mostly through posts of people on the ground or through telegram through twitter through these whatsapp platforms like it's that's where you get the real news about the real-time events you don't receive it from fox news cnn unfortunately whichever other news system is you know popular in your country it's mostly the stuff on the internet the raw data and yeah it's telling me that yeah we're gonna see something between christmas and easter next year but um soon it'll really slow down to a halt especially towards the end of november Completely agree. That would be what I said as well. And I just think if, if anyone who is, you know, on the opposite side of this than us perhaps has made it an hour and a half into this podcast, just stop holding your breath for a big Ukrainian counteroffensive because you're going to turn purple and die. So just prepare for at best, you know, a little bit of intense fighting on a hold line and then some hunkering down for a bit. And then like Dimitri said, so, uh, yeah, with all of that, this was a big episode. We kind of did it in reverse. We hit you with the, we hit you with the prophecies first, and then hit you with geopolitics at the end. But uh, with all that being said, thank you all so much. Uh, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, World War Now. Subscribe to our Substack, WorldWarNow.substack.com. Uh, like, comment. We respond to the comments, by the way. So make a Substack account. Comment. We'll answer your questions eventually. I'm going to start Q and A Substack threads that we'll even answer live or just in the podcast and recordings. So yeah, uh, follow us on Twitter at World War Now underscore. Follow me, Gnomrad. You know, it's a gnome, a gnome. Yeah, follow Dimitri, O Canonist, and uh, yeah, pray, uh, pray for peace, pray for repentance for the world, pray for unity in the church, and pray for us. You know, we appreciate your prayers uh, very, very much. So we need them. Everyone does. And um, yeah, anything you want to leave us with, Dimitri? No, I think that's uh, pretty much wraps it up. I just appreciate all the attention and feedback we've been receiving and the constructive criticism as well. Yeah, definitely leave good comments about how the show could be improved. Some of the recommendations on subjects you'd want to hear about as well, because we are planning to release even shorter episodes about, say, distinct subjects, for example, even historical ones, um, which, of course, lead to the current geopolitical and the political realities of the world for example we're, we're planning to release an episode in the future maybe a 45 minute segment about the russian revolution and our particular perspective of that event because i guess 
it has shaped the world we live in today to some extent. And of course, we'll speak about things like the American Revolution, some of these more historical events, and perhaps we'll even bring on historical experts. So give us ideas about content. We may already have those ideas, but any of your perspectives that you'd want to give us, of course, provide them for Twitter in DMs and comments. And yeah, we'll definitely take them on board. Okay. So it's an it's an open conversation as much as, you know, your minds are open and you're using your discretion. So are we. So uh, we wish you a blessed evening, morning or afternoon, wherever you are and have a nice week ahead of you.